0: Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. You guys can find your seats. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. We're glad to see one another. We're glad to be together in this very cool and comfortable room, which is wonderful. Praise God for that. This morning, we are in Daniel chapter 4. And as you turn to Daniel chapter 4, I want to remind you of something we've probably already experienced in our lives, even if we're very new to faith in Christ. And that is that ultimately, God has to break each and every one of us. And you might be thinking, well, I came to get fixed. What do you mean God is going to break me? Well, we must be broken. Our hearts must be broken. Our lives must be surrendered to God if we're ever, ever going to experience his miraculous power in our lives, and a relationship with him. But that's a difficult process. And if you've been broken, and if you're in Christ, I'm sure you have, probably many times, you know that what God takes apart and puts back together is so much better when he's finished with that work. But I think probably one of the most difficult processes for us is to watch those that we love go through a time of breaking, That is so difficult to to watch someone we care about, someone we've invested in, maybe a family member or a friend, go through a time of breaking because we would love to spare them that pain, that suffering, those trials, the difficulties, and yet you cannot spare anyone the breaking that God must do in the heart of a person who's proud or defiant or rejects God's grace. And so this morning, we're going to see that chapter 4 of the book of Daniel isn't really written by Daniel, necessarily. There are parts of it that are compiled by him, but the chapter is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar. And in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar wrote to testify about God's miraculous signs and wonders. So what happened? Well, this morning, we're going to see that whoever is broken by God will be blessed by God. Whoever is surrendered to him will find their lives abundantly blessed by him as well. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we come to you, and if anyone here is going through a time of breaking, which we all need to go through, and perhaps multiple times in our lives, in our walk, may they be encouraged, may we all be encouraged that the times of breaking in, in our lives and in the lives of those we love are essential, necessary And that you wouldn't allow it or ordain it if it wasn't. So Lord, as we study this morning in this chapter, may we come to terms with your power in our lives. And that sometimes in order to save us, you have to break us and bring us to a place of humility that you might lift us up. Lord, help us to understand this as we study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar wrote to testify, as I've said, testify about God's miraculous signs and wonders. And we'll get into it in just a minute, but as a little introduction. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, was, was once a man of extreme wickedness, extreme wickedness. In fact, he had conquered Jerusalem and taken the Israelites captive to Babylon, including Daniel and his three friends. He had ordered the execution of all his wise men because they couldn't reveal his dream or give an interpretation in chapter 2. And in chapter 3 last week, we saw that he had ordered Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into the blazing, fiery furnace. So unless you haven't been paying attention as we've gone through these studies, or this is your first time with us, you really wouldn't know, okay? unless you were paying attention, that in fact this man was a wicked man, a proud man. A stubborn man, a man who was given over to rage and fury. But if you've been paying attention, you know that this is a very unlikely candidate for God to work in his life. But the God of Israel had chosen Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to serve him. And the Lord often chooses men and women that we would never choose. Amen? I'm sure at one point you were that person. If you're serving Christ today, I'm sure at some point in your life, unless you were raised in a Christian home and very early on gave your life to Christ and never wavered, which is pretty rare, unless that's the case, you are probably much like Nebuchadnezzar in that you were a person that someone might say will never come to a relationship with God. Someone that God would never choose, maybe because of your wickedness or your pride or your stubbornness, maybe because you're just a nasty, mean person. But here's the truth. God can get a hold of a life like that and transform it completely for his glory. This proud king was given the grace to write an entire chapter or most of this chapter in God's precious word. This is his personal testimony and in it we see the fulfillment of God's plan for his life. This experience that we're about to read about resulted in his conversion and his surrender to the God of Israel. It was a breaking, a severe humbling. And Daniel recorded three significant events that had led the king to this point. The first was this. In chapter 1, he sought wisdom. He sought wisdom by training up many wise counselors, including Daniel. If the man was not seeking wisdom, he would not have found it. But he was. Secondly, in chapter 2, after having received the wisdom of God through Daniel, he acknowledged Daniel's God, not his own God, but Daniel's God as a God of gods. So he recognized the existence of God after seeking wisdom. He received wisdom from God and recognized God as a God of wisdom, but not the God, a God. He had acknowledged also, in chapter 3, we saw this last week, he had acknowledged Daniel's three friends and their God as the most high God. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by going through that fiery experience, were able to testify to the truth that their God is, as Nebuchadnezzar himself said in chapter 3, verses 26-29, the most high God. Now that doesn't say that he doesn't believe in other gods, He's not just a God of God, though. He's the most high God. He's getting closer by the end of chapter 3, but he's not there yet. Because God in his grace was mercifully and patiently, can I hear an amen? Mercifully and patiently working in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And we have to be patient because God is mercifully and patiently working in the lives of people far less wicked than Nebuchadnezzar. But this man was a wicked man. I mean, consider the most stubborn, proud, ungodly, Christ rejecting sinner you've ever met. Does it take you a while to think of that person? Maybe it's your next door neighbor. Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's your boss. But whoever it is, think of them right now. Consider God's grace. Consider our precious Savior's blood on Calvary's cross. Is it enough to save even the vilest of sinners? Say amen. Do we really believe that the miracle of salvation is open and available to everyone? Say amen. And if you do, I want you to consider one other person, Paul the Apostle. In the New Testament, he was a man that was mercifully and patiently transformed by God's grace as well. He hated Christ. You know that? He did. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. He imprisoned Christ's disciples. He put some of them to death. you got got to hate somebody to want to put them to death. To actually carry it out, you really got to hate them. In his stubborn pride, he decided to make his life's work the destruction of Christianity. And God looked down from heaven at just such a man and said, I'll take him. Saul of Tarsus later known as Paul the Apostle, belonged to Christ as few have ever dared. But he started out a man much like Nebuchadnezzar. So the premise as we get into the word today is very simple. God is looking to break the vilest of sinners and to bring him or her to salvation. Amen? Well, let's get right into it. Verses 1 through 3. We're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar was now a man of extreme brokenness. I say extreme brokenness. He went through an extreme breaking, as we'll see, but now he's extremely broken. And we read, or King Nebuchadnezzar writes, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, in Daniel 4, chapter 1, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs? How mighty his wonders? His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation degeneration. He writes in the same style and with the same passion as Daniel himself. What happened? We're about to find out. He was a king who had the power and authority to write to the whole world. I've often thought what might happen if someone who was very influential in our world, with a position that was very visible to the world, who was extremely wicked suddenly and inexplicably was broken to the point of faith in Christ. That could happen, you know, it's happened before. I've already given you some examples and we're looking at one this morning. So as we pray for some of these wicked leaders in our nation, and you don't have to try too hard to find one to pray for. There are lots. Pray not just so much that God would smite them and and, and strike them down. Pray that God would humble them and break them that they may become a testimony to God's grace and mercy. Amen? Well, here's what we learn. That the Babylonian Empire included many peoples, many nations, many language groups, in fact, and he opened his letter by wishing all of them great prosperity. He was writing to tell the world about how God had performed miraculous signs and wonders for him. And in this opening, he acknowledged that the Most High God had worked in his life personally. Can you say that? that the most high God of the universe has worked in your life personally? Oh, God works in mysterious ways. You know, when people say that, I often think, mysterious to who? Or to whom? God doesn't work in mysterious ways in the life of someone who knows him. He works in very obvious ways in in the lives of people who have a relationship with him. He only works in mysterious ways, I believe, in the lives of those who don't know him. Now, he was pleased, this king. Pleased to share his newfound faith with all of his subjects. He wrote about God's power in very personal terms. And he wrote about the fruit of God's grace. And by the way, the fruit of God's grace is a relationship with him. Amen? The fruit of God's grace, his unmerited favor, his love, is a relationship with him. So if you love God and have experienced his grace then you have a relationship with him. If you don't, you haven't, and you don't have a relationship with him. But this king praised the Most High God, and he humbled himself before him, and he understood that God was so much greater than he was. Do you understand that as great as you think you are, and as great as others might think you are, you're nothing when compared to the greatness of God. It requires a humility that only God can place in your heart to acknowledge that truth. And that King Nebuchadnezzar did. And so the fruit of God's grace is also the ability to praise him. And you've heard me say this before. Praise is when you say something true about God. For everything that's true about God is praise. Well, now we get into the next section here. We learn that Nebuchadnezzar also wrote, to share a vision that he had received in a dream. And this is how God began to work in his life. And he had spoken to him before in dreams, but this is a little different. This is very personal. Let's read the whole section. I'll start in verse 4, and we'll go on down to verse 18. And then we'll come back and, and break it down. We read in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So, I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told them the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, or in the original language, the Rabmag, the chief of the magi, I know <clears throat> that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream interpreted for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches, and from it every creature was fed. In my visions, or in the visions, I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth, and let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times, or seasons, pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Pretty self-explanatory. It doesn't require a lot of information to understand what he's saying. It will require some wisdom and knowledge from God to interpret the dream, which we'll see in a minute. But I want to point out that this was a refining work of God, a redemptive work of God. And it was going to require suffering and trials and difficulties in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. But it starts, and, I, and I, I can't help but see this, in verse 4, it starts with the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was living his life with a false sense of security, content and prosperous. His contentment was based solely on his material blessings. Now, this is in particular very telling, but also very applicable to our lives in our culture in the United States of America. For we oftentimes are extremely, often at times, are extremely contented based solely on our material blessings. That is, you're earning good money, you're doing pretty well, you live in a nice home, you have a nice car, and so you're content. There are many people that are never happy and constantly seeking more, but there are a number of people who are very contented with the blessings that God has given them, and they enjoy those blessings, but that's a false sense of security because we all know that at any moment all of those things can be taken from you. And you might say, well, wait a minute. God wouldn't do that to me. I'm an American. I'm a Christian. I love God. I pray God wouldn't do that to me. Are you better than Job? Are you better than Job? Because God was able to say to Satan, no one serves me like Job. And we know what happened to him. So his prosperity blinded him to to his spiritual poverty. You see, when when Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea, they thought they were rich and in need of nothing. But they could see everything and do everything they wanted. But they were poor, blind, miserable, and naked. And they were in need in a way they had no idea they were in need of. Spiritual blessings, spiritual wisdom, spiritual blessings. This man was spiritually Poor. Oh, he was wealthy beyond belief. But that prosperity blinded him to his spiritual poverty. And I would say that that's the number one reason why this church isn't filled to the brim and overflowing into the parking lot. Because many of the people we love and share our faith with won't come out because they don't think they need anything. They've got everything they need. So what does God do? You start praying for a brother or sister. You start praying for a loved one, a parent, a coworker. You know what happens? Bad things. Bad things happen. They get sick. They lose everything. The stock market tanks. Their cryptocurrency goes to the floor. And suddenly all of their prosperity and all the things they were relying on are taken from them. And at a certain point they think, what am I going to do? And you're praying for them. It's your fault. No, it's not. It's God breaking a man or a woman that they might be saved. So you cling to those things. What happens is God sort of reaches and grabs them and pulls them away so you'll find him. And then, of course, he gives blessings in abundance back to us once we have surrendered. And we'll see that that's the way it works. So we do know that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It made him afraid. And the images that, and the visions, they terrified him. There were things that he saw that really troubled him severely. I mean, God had already spoken to him through a vision and a dream in chapter 2. We studied that together. God had also allowed him to actually see a holy messenger in the fiery furnace in chapter 3. But God now spoke to him again through a dream, and this time a vision of great suffering and pain. Now, I'm going to say something. If you have received some sense from God in prayer that you're looking at a time of suffering in your life, I'm going to say something. It's not always necessary. In fact, sometimes God shows us what will happen if we continue in our sin. So that we can repent and avoid unnecessary suffering. But if we continue, should we be surprised when we suffer? In fact, it's been my experience that very few times does suffering come into my life and trials in my life when I'm not warned first. As a Christian, I'm speaking as a Christian. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't there yet, but God's love isn't just for the Christian. It's for all men and women. Amen? Gives him a warning. This is really a warning. He could have avoided this. You know, there are some prophecies that were given in the Bible that didn't come true. What, What did Pastor Tim just say? The Bible's not true? No, I didn't say that. I'm thinking especially of Jonah, who is told to go and tell Nineveh that 40 days and then the judgment But something happened, and that prophecy was never fulfilled. Much to the anger and the fury of Jonah, they repented. From the king all the way down to the lowliest person. And guess what? Forty days later, they weren't judged. So I want to give you that premise. I want to make sure I make that clear. Suffering is not inevitable if that suffering is bringing a breaking in your life. You can choose to go the easy way or the hard way. That's the gist of what I'm saying. But God spoke to him through this dream, and God certainly does speak to us through dreams. You know, I'm going to take a moment, I'm going to read something for you. Because I almost feel as if there's a portion in the book of Job that is applicable to Nebuchadnezzar in particular or anyone in general that is in this category of a person that is contented in their own prosperity but needs to be broken in order to come to Christ or come to God. I'm going to read it for you. See if you can recognize uh, the language. It should be very familiar to you and even more familiar as we study in Daniel 4. In Job 33, verses 14 through 30, I'll read it quickly. For God does speak, now one way, now another, though a man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears, and terrify them with warnings, to turn a man from wrongdoing, to keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword, or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones so that his very being finds food repulsive, and his soul loathes the choicest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing, and his bones, once hidden, now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, or to Sheol, and his life to the messengers of death. Yet, I want you to highlight this, yet, if there is a messenger or an angel on his side, as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom for him. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. And then he comes to men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit and I will live to enjoy the light. God does all these things to men or to a man twice, even three times to turn back his soul from the pit that the light of life may shine on him. Beautiful, beautiful scripture and beautiful poetry. But so true of so many and especially Nebuchadnezzar. I think that unlocks the key to understanding what God was doing in this man's life and how God was working. For now, we understand that he lovingly uses dreams. God uses dreams and even suffering to reach us with the truth. And when it speaks of a mediator, we can be a mediator between God and understanding uh, a a, a person or having a person understand the truth. But we have a mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ, the righteousness, the righteous, the righteous. He can bring us to God. You can only introduce them to Jesus. He is our mediator, amen? And his blood is our ransom. Spoke of a ransom in verses 23 through 24. And God wants to renew us, restore us, show us favor, fill us with joy, and redeem us. And that work of redemption is accomplished through suffering, through pain, through brokenness. I remember there was a song we used to sing back in the 90s. It was holiness, holiness is what I long for, holiness is what I need. Then we would get into the second verse, righteousness, righteousness is what I long for, righteousness is what I need. Then we get to the third verse and it really got quiet. Brokenness, brokenness is what I long for. Brokenness is what I need. No one ever sang that verse as loud as they did the first two. I think we should have replaced it with blessedness and people would have sang louder. But brokenness is blessedness. Can I hear an amen? That's what I'm trying to help you to see today. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is sharing and what Daniel has recorded. God is lovingly persistent in reaching us with his grace, and that comes in times of great suffering and difficulty. So let's look at a larger scale. What's going on in our nation? Times of suffering and great difficulty. What's going on in our world? Times of suffering and great difficulty. Oh, all his laws! You know, I really don't like people that act that way. Because they would, they would dispute that god does his best work in the midst of terrible circumstances and i absolutely am convinced that looking back at this period in our nation's history we'll be able to say that these miserable four years may have been the best thing that ever happened to us as a nation i pray that that's true i mean if god wanted to destroy us it doesn't take four years i believe god is doing a redemptive work And I pray for it. I believe he's doing a work of awakening in our culture. And it's going to require suffering and difficulty. Oh, check that off the list. We've certainly experienced that. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, back to him, he was no longer living his life with that false sense of security. And once a person no longer lives their life with a false sense of security, they're primed. They're ready to hear the gospel. So he summons those men who claim to have the ability to interpret dreams. He's willing to receive counsel. And kings often summon their counselors when they require wisdom. But it takes a degree of humility to ask someone for advice. He wanted them to tell him the meaning of the dream. But they weren't able to do that. Now, you have to stop and think. Every time he asks them to do something, they can't do it. I don't know how they kept their jobs. But he finally asked Daniel to interpret his dream for him. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. They changed his name to a pagan name, but his name means God is my judge. Daniel means God is my judge. Nebuchadnezzar recognized Daniel's gift, but he attributed it to the empowering of pagan false gods, the spirit of the gods. He didn't understand, but he addressed Daniel by that official title, the rab mag, the chief of the magi, and that's a very high title in Babylon at this time. Nebuchadnezzar was confident that Daniel would be able to interpret it because of his gifting from God. Now, did you notice that he wasn't first going to Daniel? He, he wasn't interested in Daniel until he received the dream, until it terrified him. It's, it's not until the point where he needs help that he's willing to ask for it. People won't ask for help until they need it. I mean, that sounds pretty obvious, but it's true. So you're praying for your loved one and suddenly they need help. And you think, oh, God, I wanted you to bless them. What are you doing? You're doing the opposite of what I prayed for. No, he's doing exactly what you prayed for, bringing them to a place of brokenness. Now, Nebuchadnezzar shared with Daniel the vision that he had received in a dream, an enormous tree with beautiful leaves and abundance of fruit in the middle of the land growing visible throughout the whole earth, providing food and shelter for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. It's it's an interesting picture. That's not the terrifying part. But when he saw a holy messenger from heaven call for this tree to be cut down and destroyed, stripping its branches, its leaves, its fruit, that was terrifying. It would no longer provide food and shelter for the beasts of the field or the birds of the air, and it would be reduced to a stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze. And at this point, it stops talking about, or the, the, the account stops referring to the tree as a tree and more as a person. And it becomes pretty obvious that We're not talking about a tree. We're talking about a person. And I think deep down inside, maybe Nebuchadnezzar began to think, you know, maybe I'm that tree. But the stump would remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. And he hears a holy messenger in the dream declare a severe judgment against a person. That this person would live outside with the animals among the wild and his mind would become like the mind of an animal and and not of a man for seven years. That can also be interpreted seasons, so maybe it was... Less than that, but a long time. He hears his holy messenger declare there was a purpose. And I want you to understand, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. There is a purpose in God's chastisement, in suffering. There is a purpose in difficult times and in trials and in tribulations, in difficulties, in pain, in social unrest, even in wickedness in our culture. There's a purpose. God uses that evil for good. The decision was announced by the angels who declared God's verdict against this person. Now, the verdict against this person would teach mankind about the theme of this book, which is the sovereignty of God. You have to walk away from a study in Daniel knowing that or you've missed it. If you forget everything we study here on Sunday mornings from the book of Daniel, but when someone says, what's the theme of the book of Daniel? And you say, the sovereignty of God, you get an A+. Because that is the point. God is sovereign. That is a nice way of saying he's in control. So let me ask you a question. If God is in control, why are you thinking that everything's out of control? Your life, the world, politics... When you look at the world and you say, everything's out of control, you're denouncing or denying the sovereignty of God. So I want you to walk out of here today knowing that God is in control. Can I hear an amen? If God is in control, then whatever happens tomorrow, God is in control of. Whatever happens this afternoon, whatever happens in your life, whatever happens in the life of your loved ones, God is in control Sovereign just sounds better, but the more practical way of saying it is God is in control. He's the most high God who's in control over the kingdoms of men, we're told. He reserves the right to give them to whomever he wishes. And by the way, he sets over them the lowliest of men. I'm more convinced of that in American politics than ever. You look at our leaders, you couldn't describe them in a more accurate way. The lowliest of men and women. The lowliest You say, how do such incompetent people find their way into power? Well, he sets over them the lowliest of men and women, such as Nebuchadnezzar. How does God allow the the wicked to prosper to the extent that they're making decisions in our nation? Well, he sets over us, for his purposes, the lowliest of men and women. There's a purpose in that. It's not a lot of fun, but there is a purpose in that. Twofold, in the sense that God is looking to reach us as we go through difficult times, but he's also looking to reach them as they realize they're in way over their head. Let's hope. Let's pray. So, Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel, who's called Belteshazzar, to interpret his dream for him. He's now willing to ask for help. That requires a degree of humility, not brokenness, but at least humility, because none of the other wise men of Babylon were able to interpret his dream, But he was confident that Daniel would be able to do so because of his gifting from God. You and I are, we have been gifted by God. In some way, shape, or form, we are empowered, anointed, and enabled by God. So, when people are humbled, and they need help, and they recognize that you're gifted, even if they don't know God, they recognize there's something about you that's different than everyone else that they know. They're going to come to you, and they're going to ask you questions. Interpret what's going on in my life. And you have to be able to be in a position to point them to Jesus Christ. Again, not a mediator. You might say the mediator to the mediator. You are introducing them to the mediator, the Holy One, Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, this man recognized Daniel's gift. But, remember, he attributed to the empowering of pagan false gods. He wasn't there yet. We understand that. He's not there yet. But he's on his way. If you know somebody who's on their way, say amen. Amen? They're on their way. They're not there yet. But with God's grace and mercy, they'll get there. Well, Daniel, we know, revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation and the vision of the dream, which makes teaching this very easy, because all I have to do is read it. Let's read verse 19 through verse 27. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Obviously, he was affected by it. Belteshazzar answered, that is Daniel, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live like wild or the wild animals until seven times or seasons pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O King, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times or seasons will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you. When... You acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. You see, as I said, there's there's no need for him to suffer beyond his unwillingness to repent. And there is no need for you and I to continue to suffer beyond our willingness or unwillingness to repent. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, there is no need for you to continue to suffer unless you repent. If you repent, you don't need to suffer. Now, God will bring suffering in your life as needed. But brothers and sisters, why would you go the hard way when you can choose to go the way of God's grace and mercy. Well, that means you're proud and it means you're stubborn. And the prognosis isn't very good for you because you need to go through a time of breaking in order to come to know him. But I'm here to tell you, maybe you're right at a place in your life where there's this last chance for you to avoid some severe suffering in your life and you just need to repent. That is, change your mind about your life. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender your heart to him and you can avoid an incredibly immense suffering, excruciating pain in your life. Will you continue? Oh, so many people hear a message like that and they just continue on. I beg you to consider what I'm saying, what the Lord would say to you today. Like Daniel begged Nebuchadnezzar. Do You see that? He pleaded with him. Accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind. To the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Don't suffer needlessly when God can bring you the easy way, the way of grace, the way of mercy. Well, Daniel was disturbed. He was alarmed by this interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I mean, Daniel was confused and terrified when he first heard it. The meaning confused him. He really didn't understand it. But God began to make it clear to him. And he was so disturbed that even Nebuchadnezzar encouraged him not to let the dream or its meaning alarm him. He must have been severely affected by it. Now, I want you to know that Daniel would have preferred that the dream applied to Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. What does that tell you? How did Daniel feel about Nebuchadnezzar? Some of you guys hate your bosses, I know. You'd never say it out loud or certainly not at work. But you're thinking, this is the worst boss I've ever had in my life, and I really wish he would die. Okay, maybe you don't say it that way. Maybe you just say, I really wish he would retire or get fired. But if you have a heart for somebody who's wicked, you don't actually feel that way. You're like, Lord, I wish you would do something for this person. You see, Daniel clearly cared for this man. He ultimately faithfully served this king for 43 years. How many people here have worked one job for 43 years? Probably very few, if any. So despite the fact that he had a total lack of godly character, that he had persecuted the Jews severely, even threatened Daniel and his friends with death, this man must have prayed often for the king to give his life to God and for him to serve him. In fact, he wasn't just praying for the Jews to be released from captivity— Or for God's blessings on Israel, he was praying for the heart of the king as an intercessor. In fact, I believe that the vision that the king received in this dream may have been the direct result of Daniel's prayers. Well, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar was the enormous tree with beautiful leaves and abundance of fruit. Not too difficult to understand that interpretation for us with the benefit of hindsight, but. The holy messenger from heaven called for Nebuchadnezzar to be cut down and destroyed. How would you have felt? What would you have done? And yet this is true of any person that resists God's grace. Ultimately, they will be cut down and destroyed, perhaps for eternity. But not necessarily. They may be cut down and destroyed in this life that their soul may be saved. And that's a far better fate than eternity in hell apart from Christ. The holy messenger declared severe judgment against this man, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel confirmed the interpretation and the Most High's decree against this king. He would be driven away, driven away from people, live outside with the animals and eat grass like cattle. This would continue for seven years or seven seasons until he acknowledged again the theme of this book, the sovereignty of God. Now his kingdom, this is a message of hope, because his kingdom would be restored to him, Once he acknowledged that God in heaven rules. Had he acknowledged at that moment, you know something? I don't really want to go that way. God in heaven rules. Would there have been any need if he sincerely said that and meant that? No, there would have been no need for him to suffer. How many people do you know in your life that you've warned and told them literally what is going to happen if they persist in their sin and rejection of God and they do not heed the warning Do exactly the opposite of what you advised and counseled them to do. Suffer for it. And ultimately, you have to suffer as you watch them make terrible decisions that affect their lives, not only their lives, but your life as well. Happens a lot, unfortunately. But the good news is I know countless stories of people like that who suffered enough to where they were broken and cried out to God, can I hear an amen? We have a few people like that. We have a few Nebuchadnezzars here today. I think so. I fit into that category. I'm sure many of you do as well. So there's hope. This is a message of hope. The kingdom would be restored. And Daniel pleaded with this man, repent of your sins so that your prosperity might continue. I think that's a message for our nation, our culture, for us individually. Repent that your prosperity, your blessing might continue. This man needed to do two things. He needed to renounce his sins and do what was right. Renounce your sins and do what's right, and renounce your wickedness and show kindness to the oppressed. That doesn't sound so difficult to do, but for some people, they'd rather eat their own hand than give kindness and show mercy to others. That's the message. And now Daniel records exactly how God fulfilled his decree against Nebuchadnezzar. Let's take a look at that. Picking it up in verse 28. In verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. You know what surprises me the most? The next verse, 12 months later. What does that tell you? It tells you that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't God destroyed the people who want to kill their children? Why hasn't God destroyed people who promote wickedness and abuse children? Why hasn't God destroyed our culture, which is guilty and and really worthy of destruction? For the same reason that Nebuchadnezzar was given 12 months. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is a God of love and mercy. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. He is patient. He is patient with the vilest and wicked, most wicked of sinners. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof... of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this or is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for my glory, or for the glory of my majesty? Well, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until... You acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. And at the end of that time, we read there in verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. We'll stop right there for just a minute. What happened to this guy? Well, exactly what God said would happen. Nebuchadnezzar proudly declared that he had built the kingdom of Babylon as his royal residence. I'm sovereign, he might say, not God. Happening one year after he received the vision and its interpretation... He claimed that he had built the city of Babylon by his own mighty power and for the glory of his majesty. Are you very proud of the things you've accomplished in this life? Or do you give glory to God? I think in ministry it's very easy to say glory to God, but really, aren't I something? Babylon was considered the most beautiful city in the ancient world. It was located along the Euphrates River, covered six square miles with great walls and palaces. It's hanging gardens are recognized as one of the ancient world's seven wonders. And he looks around from his roof and he says, I really am something. Aren't I awesome? And then he heard the holy messenger declare that severe judgment against him. His royal authority over the kingdom of Babylon would now be taken from him. He would be driven away from people, live outside with the animals, and eat grass like cattle. And this would, as we've been told, continue for seven years or seasons until he acknowledged the sovereignty of God. How long is it going to take for you, I wonder? By the way, this is the third time that he was told exactly why this was going to happen. Seven is the number of completion or perfection in the Bible. It's to say creation was accomplished in seven days, finished in seven days. So when you say seven or use an idiom with the number seven in it, what you're saying is this is going to be a perfect humbling. God does his best work in our lives through his grace and his mercy toward us. Never confuse God's perfecting work with his punishment. Too many people are quick to cite God's work as his punishment. You'll know God's wrath when you see it. But God's mercy... His mercy is everlasting. God's work of mercy and grace is without question the most beautiful thing to behold. But it oftentimes comes through times of great ugliness and pain. But it's still beautiful to behold. Amen? This man's sanity was immediately taken from him by the Most High God. His mind became like the mind of an animal, not the mind of a man. He was driven away from people. And he ate grass like cattle. He ate basically. He ate whatever he could eat. And he lived outside with the animals. Now that's because in many places in the Orient, the mentally insane are left to themselves. I know that doesn't here happen here, right? That the mentally insane are left to themselves. Or some of you been to San Francisco lately? It's exactly how we treat our treat our mental ill today. We just sort of do the same thing with them. So we really shouldn't be surprised. But he's the king, and still they were so fearful. Because you see, those who were insane or mentally ill are considered accursed. And in the ancient world, they were avoided by even their own families. They just sort of opened the back door like you're trying to get rid of a cat you don't like. Just let him go. Sorry, Ellen. A dog you don't like. So you see, the idea is, you, you don't care, you know, you just, just open the back door, let him go. His hair became filthy and matted like eagle's feathers, and his nails grew long like bird claws. And then we get to the last portion of this. In verse 34, we read, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven. And the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar writes. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, God's work may come through pain and difficulty, but this man humbled himself before the Most High God and his sanity was restored after those seven years or times. Notice it started, he he raised his eyes toward heaven instead of looking down his nose from the roof of his palace. He praised God instead of praising his own accomplishments. And he honored and glorified the eternal God instead of his own power, glory, and majesty, the majesty is king. He had a change of heart, but it took an incredibly difficult time in his life to bring him there. Yes, he acknowledged the sovereignty of the Most High God, which was the purpose of this suffering. He testified that God's dominion is eternal, that his kingdom endures forever. He understood that all the peoples of the earth are nothing when they're compared with God. And he acknowledged that God is sovereign over heaven and earth. He understood no one can prevent God's will from happening or question his actions. Would you say this man was broken? Say amen. Have you ever heard a testimony of someone who was absolutely wicked and then they went through an awful time and they repented and, and you find out they murdered people or they just were awful with people and, and you're like, wow, oh my goodness, I, I, that guy, I had that guy to my house. <laughs> I had no idea. You can't even believe it's the same person. Well, that's because it's not. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Amen. Well, his kingdom was restored to him now that he had acknowledged that the God of heaven rules. The former honor and splendor that this man had was restored to him, but it was, it was for the glory of God. It was the glory of his kingdom, God's kingdom, not his own kingdom. And his counselors, you know, they sought him. They restored him to his throne as king. That's miraculous in a sense, really. And he became even greater in power, glory, and majesty than he had been before. Like Job's end was better than his beginning. He became a messenger of God's glory and grace, and he praised, exalted, and glorified God as the king of heaven. Are you doing that with your life? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As this man testified to God's righteous works and his just ways, we can do likewise. As this man testified to God's ability to humble those who walk in pride before him, such as Nebuchadnezzar, let's remember that we don't need to go the hard way. We can go the easy way. Brothers and sisters, God's purpose in Nebuchadnezzar's trial was to raise him to an even higher position of power within Babylon. God works through awful circumstances on our behalf and for our good. Amen? He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Nebuchadnezzar didn't even love him, and God was still working on his behalf because he knew Nebuchadnezzar belonged to him from the foundation of the world. His humbling gave him the opportunity to give his life to God. And I hope you'll give your life to God if you haven't already this morning. This gave him an opportunity to serve God. And I hope and pray that you'll serve God this morning based on this testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, the Jewish people now had another very powerful advocate to care for and protect them during their captivity. The king of the Babylonian Empire. And that was the real result of the king's conversion. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. You do great and awesome things in our midst. Continue to work in the hearts of those that defy you and reject you and embrace wickedness. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.